You may be seated. This week as I was um, spending some time with the Lord earlier this week on Tuesday morning, it's a normal habit of mine to make my way through the scriptures um, systematically from Genesis to Revelation and uh, to do that as many times as the Lord will allow that in a year. Um, and so I encourage you to do the same. Uh, there are many plans, many written plans. Many of you may have those, and all of them are good. Try any of them to work for you. I found it best for me to start in Genesis and to end in Revelation and to start in Genesis and end in Revelation and just continue that reading pattern. Now remember, there's a difference in reading and studying. What I'm talking about is reading through the Scripture completely, beginning to end, and there's a lot of reasons for it, and I won't go into all of them. But what I normally do is mark passages that are of interest to me. I will take a pen or a highlighter in my reading Bible, and I will uh, make question marks, I'll highlight, I'll ask myself a question in the column, and then I will systematically go back through those over years. Uh, hopefully I'll finish it before I die. And answer, try to my best to answer those questions from Scripture. And so that's just a practice. Well, I'm trying to answer a question now. And that is, why did God kill the men who were before the ark when it was returned to Israel from, Philistine, from the Philistines? Why did he kill them in the field of, of uh, Joshua? He killed 70 men that day. Struck them dead. And um, God convicted me this week of, I believe, why he killed them. And it's simpler than we might first find it. But I think it's relevant for us. <clears throat> this is why. God killed those men simply because they took him lightly. That was the reason he killed them. They looked on the ark of the Lord and God struck them dead. Seventy men in total. They looked at the ark and God struck them. The Philistines had looked on the ark and had been cursed with the plagues of the mice and the tumors and all these things. And so you find this story in 1 Samuel 6 and 7 and they say, we got to do something. What do we do? And their priests took these golden images and crafted them in the shape of mice and tumors, put them in a box, made a cart, took some cows, put the Ark of the Covenant on the cows, a uh, cart drawn by the cows, put the boxes next to that as a peace offering to this God, Jehovah, and said, if this cart leaves here on its own and goes to the land of, of the Israelites, then it is God who has struck us. And if not, then there's another reason. And they, they turned the cows loose and they went directly to the land of Israel. The Bible says they turned neither left or right, but went directly to the field of Joshua and stopped at the great stone of offering, the altar which had been built in the field. They stopped. They went. Not only did they go towards Israel, they went neither right nor left and went directly to the altar of God and stopped. And the people of Philistines, the Philistine men were watching this, these priests. And the men of Israel came forward and they broke the cart down and they offered an offering 
of the cows and they were worshiping God and God struck them dead. It's a puzzling thing to me. But this is the simple truth. God killed them because they took him lightly. Think about that. We come before God lightly, often, if not daily. We take him as nothing. We take him as some vague spirit that floats around the earth. That's how we act. Yet God is so jealous of his own name and his own glory that these men looked at the seat of God and he killed them. That's how serious God takes worship. That's how serious God takes his own glory. That's how he will gain his honor. You better believe he got their attention. The people of Israel were standing at attention at that point. The people of the Philistines were standing at attention at that point. You see, you never find these stories. You never find these stories Unless you read, I was telling, uh, I guess Lori got to, and the children got to sit through my soapbox at the end of the Sunday school lesson. Be a people of the book. Read. Read the book of God over and over and over. Saturate yourself with it and it will change you. And you will fear God and live, the word says. But if you be far from the word, you will not fear God and you will perish. Read. I challenged the children. They all told me how many hours they read anything. You know, and I went on. And then I said, how many hours do you spend watching TV? Well, it was all much more than they read. And I, beside, then I you know, ran it for a moment. You know, your brains are turning to mush. You know. They are, but that's not the most important thing. It's not about being smart. It's not about going to college. It's not about gaining a degree or an approval of a man. It's about knowing the book and the God of the book so that you might live. It is the word of life. Genesis to Revelation. Read it. If you haven't started this year, you have five weeks left. Read it. You can finish this book. I think it's five weeks. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Four, five, six weeks, something like that. Read it. Listen, most of you have read books bigger than the Bible. Read it. It will change you like no other book. Like no other book. Just read the book. It'll change you. John chapter 3, last paragraph. We are coming to the end of this great chapter. It's a powerful chapter that begins with the witness of Jesus Christ about himself to Nicodemus. And John's recording that. And remember, John was probably witness to this conversation Maybe Christ gave him the information, but he could have been there with Jesus listening to this conversation. It's a very detailed recount of the story, and so it's very probable that he heard it with his own ears. So in the first part of chapter 3, we have the recounting of the witness of Jesus Christ to himself. And then just after that, in verses 22 through 30, we have a witness of John the Baptist about who Jesus is. Right. And he says, I must decrease. He must increase. We talked about the snapshot of a humble man. How can we be humble? We can't make ourselves humble. We can't do it. It's not natural. What has to happen is the spirit of God has to humble the man so that he might love Jesus Christ with all of his heart and soul and mind so that he might worship 
God in spirit and truth so that you might relate in the right way between man, your fellow man. So we have that in verses 22 through 30. And now we reach the end of this chapter where John the Baptist is giving witness to the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives witness to himself. John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. Now let me give you a witness of him so that he might increase and I might decrease. That's how the chapter is put together. And so we have this powerful chapter ending in this most powerful way with five reasons that John the Baptist says we should find Jesus Christ supreme over all things. Jesus Christ is supreme. In John 33, 31 through 36, and we read it earlier in the service. Heath read it, did a good job. I know it tangles you up because it talks about He's above and the one who's above is above all. And the one that's beneath is beneath on the earth. And all these things start running together, don't they, when you read them. So we're going to pick it apart verse by verse so that we don't miss anything. You should believe in the supremacy of Christ above all things because Christ is from heaven. Look at verse 31. That's what he says in verse 31. If you look there, he who comes from above is above all. Christ is supreme because He's from heaven. When we pick up this word here in this paragraph, above all, or excuse me, from above. In the original, this is the same word which is translated for us in John 3, 7, born again. And in verse, uh, and, and later in that same passage, in verse, or earlier in verse 3, Jesus said, you must be born again. Born, literally born from above. You must be born from above, Nicodemus, if you will be saved. And Jesus, or John the Baptist says of Jesus, He is from above. Now, that is significant. Jesus is supreme over us because though we are born from above, He is from above. He is supreme to us. In relation to us, He is the older brother. He is the deity in the flesh. He came from heaven to earth. We come from earth to heaven. He is supreme because He is from above and He has made us born again through the Spirit of God. That's the relationship we see John the Baptist pointing out here. And he he emphasizes Christ, the difference in Christ and Himself by saying He's from the earth. Look what He said in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. This word, uh, gi, not cosmos. Gi means that he is from the earth, literally. He's a simple man. He's common. He says, I'm nothing spectacular, nothing different. I'm a lump of clay in the hand of God. That's all I am. That's all you are. That's all I am. Jesus is from above. He's not a lump of clay. He is deity in the flesh. We are from the earth. We're earthly. Not just in sin, but just in our very makeup, we're different from Him. He is divine. We are not. He is supernatural. We are natural. There's a difference in John the Baptist is separating them so that we might see why we should worship Jesus Christ as supreme over everything. Because He's from heaven. He's from above. I challenge each of you. This month, spend time reading the Gospels, the four Gospels. Just if my reading plan doesn't work for you, start in the New Testament. You say the Old Testament's hard. I don't get it. 
We'll get there later. But because you need the Old Testament. But start Matthew and go to John and then start Matthew and go to John. Read as many times as you can this month. Saturate your mind with the actions and the words and the life of Jesus Christ this month leading up to Christmas. It'll change Christmas for you. You'll have a whole different season. You'll forget all about Santa Claus and gifts and stockings and food and family. You forget all about Santa and his reindeer. Okay? If you saturate yourself with the Word of God, your focus this year can't help but be Jesus Christ. That's what it was written for. If you, I challenge you, this month, if you don't do it the rest of the year, just this month, read the Word of God. Read Matthew through John as many times as you can. And you will be struck by the way that Jesus Christ is portrayed to us in those books. He is powerful. He is other than us. He's able to do things no man could do. If you leave your reading time thinking, whoa, what's so spectacular about Jesus? There's a serious disconnect between you and heaven. You might not be a believer. If just reading about Him doesn't convict you that He is something special and to be worshipped, there's a disconnect between you and the Father. You might not be a believer. You really need to examine that. Jesus said of Himself in John 5, 33-36, in, in a witness uh, to Himself that's greater than John the Baptist. Listen to what He said. It's there on the screen. You sent to John, talking to the leaders of the Jews, and He has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. <clears throat> Jesus is saying, I'm greater than John the Baptist. You sent after John, you remember, we reviewed that in chapter 1. Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Then why do you baptize these people if you're not all of that? Right? And John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was his response. He identified Jesus. You know, when you start feeling the heat, turn it on Jesus. He can handle it. John was under the heat. He was under the firing squad. He ran to Jesus. Just look to Him. Forget about me. I'm the moon. He is the sun. I'm a little lamp. He is a torch. When He comes in, I go away. He must increase. I must decrease. And Jesus was witness to that. He says, John is the moon. I'm the sun. When I rose, he descended. You can't even see him anymore. You beheaded him. You did away with him. Why? Because he convicted you. Because you didn't want his testimony. Why did you not want his testimony? Because his testimony was all about me and how I'm not like you, rulers. I'm a ruler who's perfect. I'm a ruler who is divine. I'm a ruler who comes to save, not build law on top of law. I'm the one who came to fulfill what you couldn't do. I'm fulfilling the 10, you can fulfill the 600. I'm divine. You are not. That's why you rejected John. That's why you reject me. Jesus Christ is supreme. And you have to believe that because He is from heaven. Secondly, you should believe in the supremacy of Christ above all things because He is a witness firsthand. You know, in a court of law, they don't allow hearsay. That's circumstantial evidence. 
if Rod commits a crime and Aaron tells me he committed it, I can't go to the judge and say, Rod committed the crime. And the lawyer says, how do you know? And I say, because Aaron told me. And the other lawyer's going to stand up and say, I object. That's hearsay. And then they're going to throw it out. It's not admissible. Why? They want a first-hand witness. Whole different matter if I say, Rod committed the crime. Well, how do you know? Because he was in my house and I saw him with my own eyes and he took my stereo and left. I saw him do it. He's in a world of hurt now. Now, he's still, that's a witness. That's a strong witness. We call it gossip when it gets second, third, and fourth hand, right? Jesus isn't gossiping about God. Jesus is giving first-hand account. Jesus is able to say, if you've seen me, you've what? You've seen the Father who sent me. He's giving a first-hand witness. That's why He's supreme to all others. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 say, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed to the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Jesus Christ is supreme because He's from above and because He's a first-hand witness. He's not gossiping about God. He's saying, I've seen Him. I've been with Him. If you've seen me, you've seen Him. Because He sent me. This is exactly what John is saying in verse 32. Look at 32. He bears witness to what He has seen and heard. Jesus isn't bearing witness to what John has seen and heard. Jesus is bearing witness firsthand. I've seen it, John. John says, Jesus has seen it. Jesus has heard it. Jesus is telling the complete truth about the Father. The Old Testament prophets told what they knew. They were limited. Jesus is unlimited. He knows all things. And Jesus often gave a witness of firsthand, totally reliable evidence. Look at this list of scriptures. John 3, 11 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak, speaking, that's again why I believe John, the gospel writer, was with him. Jesus is sitting there speaking to Nicodemus, and he says, we. I think he's talking about himself, and he's talking about John and whoever else was there. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus says, I'm giving you a firsthand testimony. John eight twenty six. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have heard from him. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friend. Why? Why does he call us a friend? For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I have borne firsthand witness to who God is. You're not my servants. You're my friends. You know it all. John 7, 46. The officers answered, The officers of the temple answered, no man has ever spoken like this. The Pharisees said, why didn't you bring this man to us? He's blaspheming. He's committing a sin. Why are you not bringing him to us to put him on trial? Jesus was so authoritative in his witness, they were afraid to touch him. They said, look, you don't understand. Can't you hear the attendant now? He asked for the scrolls. He had on his rabbinical robe. I handed him. The scrolls, visiting rabbi gets to speak first. He stands up, reads the scroll, puts the scroll down. 
and tells us what it's about. Nobody's ever taught us like this. That's why we didn't bring him in here. What were you going to do with it? It's like you couldn't handle him when he was 12. You sure can't handle him now. He's full grown. He twisted you in knots until you, you shook your head and said, this guy's different. He's supreme. That's why he's different. The Pharisees saw it. The officers saw it. The disciples saw it. Nicodemus saw it. And he is different because he's from above and because he gives firsthand eyewitness account of God the Father. The tragic truth at the end of this verse is a simple repeating of the words of John 1, 9 through 11. The light has shone in the darkness and you would not believe it. You would not receive it. Jesus, John says what Jesus is, what John, the gospel writer, has already said. John the Baptist says, he's told you the testimony and you won't believe it. You won't receive it. You've rejected it. This is a comment here. Jesus makes in 3 verse 11, you do not receive our testimony, Jesus said. And it's easy to understand why. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, that the spiritual things cannot be understood by the physical man. They can only be discerned spiritually. Look, if you're here and you're lost today, the only hope you have of understanding what I'm saying is that the Holy Spirit teach you what I'm saying. If he doesn't teach you what I'm saying, it will sound like foolishness to you. And you'll reject it. Because that's what natural people do. And if you're hearing me today and you're a believer, the Holy Spirit bears witness to the truth of my words because they come from the Word of God. I'm just simply telling you what God has already said. That's what a preacher does. He tells you what God has already said. And because I am telling you what God has said, the Spirit will bear witness to that inside of you and you will say this is truth. And it will transform your life. That's the power of preaching. The Spirit is the power of preaching. He takes the Word of God and roots it in your heart. If you're here in this place today without Jesus Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are blind to the light. You cannot hear it and you cannot see it and you cannot understand it. You need the Holy Spirit who comes and works a supernatural work in you to open your eyes, to give you life, to open your ears. You might have seen this when Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Can't you see all the people standing around? The Pharisees, the lost men that the Spirit of God's not working on? They're like this. Dude, check me out. I got two ears, right? He's talking about if I got ears I need to hear, I'm hearing him. What's he talking about? I don't get it. But those who were convicted by the Spirit of God came to him. They all came to him. And they understood he wasn't speaking about physical hearing. He was speaking about spiritual ears and spiritual hearing. And when they heard him say, he who has ears, let him hear, their hearts leaped to repentance. And they believed. And they were saved. And the same will happen for you. If you're lost here today, you may sit for years and hear with these ears and not understand and not believe. But the moment that the Spirit of God gives you spiritual hearing, you will leap to repentance and you will be saved. He will not lose you. And if you come to Him, He will not cast you out because He is from above, because He has firsthand witness to the truth. Also because... You, you have to believe in His supremacy because he's above all, that He's above all things because His testimony has agreed with God the Father. If you call Jesus a liar, you have called God a liar. 
Titus 1.2 says God cannot lie. God cannot lie. So if Jesus lied, then God lied. If God lied, we're all in trouble. All right? <clears throat> so we know He didn't lie. Verse 33 says, Whoever receives His testimony sets His seal to this, that God is true. See, if you call Jesus a liar, John the Baptist said you've called God a liar. And this whole setting your seal to it, that's like signing your name. That's like pricking your hand and signing in blood. That's, it, that's what it is. It's your, when you set your seal to this, that Jesus is the Christ, you have said God is true. And that, in, that, in the Roman culture, they had signet rings. Many of you know, and they might dip them in hot wax and seal their wills or seal their papers or seal a testimony. This is by my hand and this is true. And I'm giving my name to it. That's what it takes to be saved. John's saying, if you set your seal to this, you've said God is true. What he's saying there is, you can't be saved unless you give yourself to it. Unless you believe with everything you are that Jesus is the Christ, you cannot be saved. There can be no reservations when a man signs his name in blood, when a man signs his name, pricks his finger and puts blood on the paper, he's saying, by my own blood, I bear witness to the truth of these statements. If they're not true, kill me. Have you done that spiritually? Have you signed your name and signed it with blood? Have you? You can, you can only do that with 100% in. There's no hedge in your bet. There's no 80 in and 20 out, 90 in, 10 out. There's no 99% in, I believe in Jesus, but this 1% I'm going to hold on to. No. You haven't set your seal to it. You haven't given your name in blood. You haven't borne a witness that says, I will die based on these truths. Look, I'm a chicken. I really am. I try to look tough sometimes, but I'm 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 not a very brave person. But I say this with all sincerity. I have set my seal to the truth that Jesus is the Christ. And let the world fall away. Let my family die. Let me die in the flames. I believe it because it is true and God cannot lie. That is why I know I'm with Christ. Why? Because it's true. I can't help but believe it and I'll give my life to it. I'm not going to die for many things in this life. You're only going to die once. You know, you can't die for a lot of things. But I choose to die on this hill that Jesus is the Christ and He's the only way to heaven. He's the only way to the Father. I've set my seal. One day, maybe I'll set my seal permanently there if God sees fit. But through martyrdom. But there are those being martyred every day in our world. And they're setting their seal to God's truth. He is supreme because He's from above because He bears first-hand witness, because He is true. God is true. You must believe in the supremacy of Christ above all things because Christ has experienced the full limit of the Holy Spirit. For in Him, Colossians 2.9 says, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We have the Holy Spirit, but we don't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we have sin in our life. Matter of fact, Paul says you can be in the Spirit and not walking in the Spirit. That's not true about Jesus. 
Jesus was in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, sleeping in the Spirit, eating in the Spirit, speaking in the Spirit. He did everything in the Spirit. We don't. Why? Because we have sinful flesh. And it wars against the Spirit. And it wins sometimes. But He did not experience that. He experienced the fullness of the Spirit. Verse 34 in our paragraph says that. For He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. Some have wrongly believed that's talking about Him giving us the Spirit. No. No. There is a measure of grace given to each of us, the Bible says. Some of us are stronger than others in the faith, and some of us get more grace than others do. But Jesus got it without measure. He's full of the Spirit. Finally, you must believe in the supremacy of Christ above all things, because Christ received all authority from heaven, from God. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11, we see that there is no other name given under heaven that a man might be saved. At his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Ephesians 1, 22 is one of my favorite verses. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Get this picture. God the Father fills God the Son with God the Holy Spirit and the church fills Christ. Think about it. It's what Paul just said. God fills Christ. The church is the fullness of the body of Christ on this earth. We are the fullness of Christ. We are this day filling up the sufferings of Christ. The church around the world is. You are maybe. Filling up the sufferings of Christ. What Christ still lacks, we are now filling to, filling up in His uh, afflictions. 1 Peter 3.22, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. 1 Corinthians 5.27, For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. He's made it His footstool. Matthew 28.18, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is the very end of John the Baptist's ministry on earth. In just a few short weeks, he preaches against the, the, uh, the sin of Herod Antipas, who was sleeping with his brother Philip's wife, and he was arrested, and John was beheaded. His last glowing moment on this earth, his last testimony was that Jesus is supreme over all things. It's what his whole life was consumed with. Verse 36 is the last verse we'll look at today. As we end the chapter, I think it's unbelievable the way this whole thing comes down. He sums it up with this statement. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not have life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus bears witness to himself. And how did he end his own witness? He said, I did not come to condemn the world, but the world through me might be saved. The world is already condemned. It already has the wrath of God. Why? Because it does not believe in me, his one and only son. That was Jesus' end to his own personal witness. John ends his own witness, his witness to Christ in the same way. Whoever believes in him will have life. Whoever doesn't believe in him will die and the wrath of God will stay on that man. 
I've more than once read part of the sermon Jonathan Edwards preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It, it is the greatest sermon ever preached on this continent. It's republished even today in literature books and people read it. Its words are like the words of God. That's why it's been preserved so many years. I'm going to put some of these words on the screen. I want you to follow this. This is the close to my sermon. I've, because I'm not able to voice exactly all the things I think that John the Baptist meant, I think Jonathan Edwards does it better than me. I'm letting him close my sermon. Okay? So, please follow along. Whoever believes in the Son, Jonathan Edwards writes, or preached, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's what John the Baptist said in John 3, 36. Now listen to what Jonathan Edwards preached. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is loosed. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw His hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure sovereignty of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus all you that never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a state of new and before altogether unexperienced light and life, are in the hands of an angry God. However you may have reformed your life in, the, in many things, and may have had religious affections, and may keep up a form of religion in your families and closets, and in the house of God, it is nothing but His mere sovereignty that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. However unconvinced you may now be of the truth of what you hear, by and by you will be fully convinced of it. Those that are gone from being in the like circumstances with you, see that it was so with them. For destruction came suddenly upon most of them when they expected nothing of it and while they were saying peace and safety. 
Now they see that those things on which they depended for peace and safety were nothing but thin air and empty shadows. And let everyone that is yet out of Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old men and women or middle-aged or young people or little children, now hearken to the loud calls of God's Word and providence. This acceptable year of the Lord, a day of such great favor to some, will doubtless be a day of as remarkable vengeance to others. Men's hearts harden and their guilt increases apace as such a day as this if they neglect their souls. And never was there so great danger of such persons being given up to hardness of heart and blindness of mind. God seems now to be hastily gathering in His elect in all parts of the land. And probably the great part of adult persons that ever shall be saved will be brought in now in a little time. And that it will be as it was on the great outpouring of the Spirit upon the Jews in the Apostles' day. The election will obtain and the rest will be blinded. If this should be the case with you, you will eternally curse this day and will curse the day that ever you was born to see such a season of the pouring out of God's Spirit and will wish that you had died and gone to hell before you had seen it. Now undoubtedly it is as it was in the days of John the Baptist. The axe is in an extraordinary manner laid at the root of the trees that every tree which brings not forth good fruit may be hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountains, lest you be consumed." And as it was in John the Baptist's day, and as it was in Jonathan Edwards' day, so it was in the days of Noah. Do not think God is light about His glory. I read you a story of God striking 70 men dead because they looked at an ark of the covenant. They looked at an ark and they were killed. Also remember the story of Genesis chapter 6, which teaches us without a shadow of a doubt that God has proclaimed the truth, that when men reject the truth, There is a just punishment. They were swept away in a flood of water. Those who reject it today will be swept away in a flood of fire and brimstone for all of eternity. Let them be a testimony to you and to me that Jesus Christ is supreme and that belief in Him is required or we face the wrath of God. Let's pray. Father, We end this great chapter much the way we began it. We cannot be saved without your help. We cannot believe unless you give us new life. We cannot open our eyes. We're blind. Give us sight to see the light. We cannot come to you because we are deaf. We cannot hear you. Because we have no ears, give us ears and make us where we may hear your voice calling so we might come and be saved. Lord, do it now, please, to this congregation. I fear for those here that do not know you. I fear for them, for 
I believe the day is coming when they will face death. And when they do, without you, they will face eternal death in hell. And Father, I pray that you would convict them of their sin, convince them of the fact that Jesus is supreme, call them so that they might be saved, comfort them with their belief, and carry them into eternal life. Lord Jesus, we praise you, we glorify you as the only one who can save us. And we look to the witness of John the Baptist and we say, and I say, I believe. I set my seal, I set my blood, I set my life to the fact that God is true and every man a liar. Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth and He is Lord of me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that fact. It is your gift. It is your salvation. And I pray for this congregation that we might come before you trembling, that we might come not taking you lightly, and that we might come extolling your praise and spreading your honor and your glory to all men everywhere. We love you and praise you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.